Heavenly Father, we want to thank you first of all that you are the owner of all things. And that even our own lives have been bought with the price, the precious blood of Christ. We pray that as we walk through this day, we walk in, in the lights of your word and to your honor and glory. We thank you for Matt. Thank you that uh, you've given him talents and intelligence and skill. And you're sharing these things with us. Help us to grasp the things we need to grasp today. And bless our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, I got to start with the unpleasant part. Pastor Hall says I'm supposed to introduce myself. I hate doing this. But um, my name is Matt Romasco. Some of you are here yesterday. I am a member of Cedar Lake Church. Um, I've been working with estate planning for a little over 20 years now. I've got a certificate with the state of Michigan as a estate planning attorney. So it's my focus. But it's not the only thing I do. I also do uh, real estate or property law, and I do business law. I think to be a good estate planning attorney, you have to meld all of those. Because most people will come in and say that they have a business or they have property, and you have to be attuned to all of those things. Uh, as far as business, I sit on about three or four profit boards. I sit on a bunch of non-profit boards. So it brings a kind of different perspective to, um, to this. As far as the church, I'm third generation Adventist. So with Allison, Michigan. So, today, we're going to continue on with our topic, and that is the who, what, when, and where of estate planning. Last time we talked about estate planning made simple. You should all have a handout that talks about terms. We want to talk in the same language, so this is why you're receiving a term sheet. These terms are not going to be legal. They're not what you're going to find in a Black's Law Dictionary. They're more practical. And the reason why is I want us to speak the same language. Now yesterday what we did is we talked about generally estate planning. And intentionally we hit just about every aspect of estate planning from property to wills to trust to powers of attorney to what do you do to keep things out of probate and in probate. So what we're going to do the next three days is we're really going to delve deeper into some of those issues. This is intended to make state planning simple for you, but this is not basic. The things that we're going to be talking about are really more in-depth. So here's a question. Who has the power? Who has the power? The state sometimes? Yeah. The owner? Administrator? All good answers. The easy answer is who has the real power? Obviously it's God. Um, no, not just question. All your answers were correct. But it's based on what perspective, right? So it depends on what we're talking about. This is one of my uh, favorite verses from Job. Um, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power, in his justice, in great righteousness, he does not oppress. So when we talk about power, we need to look at what aspect of your life that we're talking about. Now, there's going to be come a time where we have to talk about guardians and conservatorships. Now, this is important because this is going to lead into our next topic. 
Guardianships is over the person. Conservatorships is over the property. When we talk about guardians and conservatorships, we're really trying to break those two out. So for a guardianship, the court will appoint a fiduciary to act on behalf of a person. So a fiduciary is just somebody that is acting on behalf of another. They're appointed. So how a guardianship works is somebody makes a petition to the court. All a petition is is a request. And how we get it to the court is we pay a fee. Go figure. So what you do is you bring a petition into the court and you say, Judge, this person can't act on their own accord anymore. They've got some issues, either physical or mental or both, where they cannot act efficiently or effectively on their behalf. Now, i got to say, in practicing, I hate doing guardianships. The reason why is they're incredibly depressing to do. Because you're doing a number of things. When you prepare a petition, you have to have a petitioner, right? Somebody that's asking. It's not the attorney. It's usually a family member. Okay? The last one that I was involved in was a contested guardianship. So, individual was not doing well. She wanted to live at home. She was having issues living at home, leaving the stove on, not eating. Um, she was really having a hard time. So what we ended up doing is her daughter wanted to come in and petition. Daughter said, I need you to have the court appoint me or somebody else. It doesn't have to be me, but somebody needs to take care of mom. So what ended up happening is we had to get a physician's report. Because what you do is you fill out an affidavit from the person that's making the petition, and it says, this is what mom is doing. This is why I've observed. These are my concerns. But we also get a report from the doctor. And the doctor says, based on my examination, this is the issues that the person's having. You would think that that's pretty cut and dry, right? It's not. So what happens is we present it to the court. The court then points what's called a guardian ad litem to act on behalf of the individual who we're seeking to have a guardianship. So that guardian ad litem is usually an attorney. I've acted as guardian ad litem before. It's a horrible job, right? Because you're potentially in this conflict. So the guardian ad litem meets with the individual and they make a report. What they usually do is they also report meet with the family members. That's where the interesting part comes. The woman had two daughters and a son. They agreed on nothing. <laughs> if we would ask them what day today was, we think it's Tuesday, we would have an hour discussion on what the word day means. Okay, so this was going to court. So the other daughter, the brother, got an attorney. Um, we went into court, and this is where the problem lies. The judge has to hear all this and sift through. The judge has about 45 minutes to do this. Okay, So we're bringing up decades of family history, 45 minutes in an arena that's open to the public. So what happens is the petitioner gets up. She says, 
this is what I've observed with mom, these are my concerns. Who do you think should be the guardian? I don't care, I just want mom taken care of. The sister and the brother get up, what do you think? Mom's doing great. Often, do you see mom? Well, you know, we had Thanksgiving a couple years ago, and she seemed really good then. You know, she knew what the turkey was or the turkey wolf, so we're pretty happy. Um, brother, well, you know, I come there about once a month. I spend about 15 minutes with her. She seems great. But then we have to bring the doctor, and the doctor testifies as to how mom is doing. The judge makes a determination. The judge has a couple choices. Since she didn't designate anybody in writing who should be her guardian if she needed one, the judge goes in a hierarchy. Okay? The hierarchy as to what the state believes who should be appointed. First in the hierarchy is anybody you designate in writing. So I can designate Sal as my um, guardian in a writing. And if something happens to me, Sal can take the position if he wants. He doesn't have to, but he can take the position. If Sal doesn't take it, my wife would take it. Since I have two daughters, if my wife doesn't want to take it, my daughters would take it. If my daughters wouldn't take it, my mother would take it. It goes up and down the family tree. Think of it kind of as a Christmas tree. So what ended up happening in this case is the judge made a determination. The judge appointed the person that was making the petition because she had met with mom weekly. She had spent hours with mom. She had taken her to the doctor's appointment. I tell you this story because I want to get the picture of what happens. Okay, This is one of the more important things that we can do. Okay, When we talk about guardians and conservatorships, it's, in my mind, much more important. When we talk about wills, we're talking about stuff, right? Who gets this chair? If I pass away, i got to tell you, it really doesn't matter. Right? It's a chair. It's things. But when you start talking about where mom's getting her care, where she's going to stay, who's going to be in charge of her bank account, who's going to make sure that her bills are paid, this is a lot more important. This is much more of a focus. Do we want to have the court take its... I knew the judge, he probably reviewed everything beforehand, so an hour and a half to make this decision. Should we have taken court time to do that? Probably not. Could we have fixed this a better way? Absolutely. So when we talk about guardianships, we talk about who's going to act on behalf of the person. <laughs> okay, well, we talk about conservatorships. Yes? They could have, but the court looks at it much differently. Um, we have many well-established rules of written documents. So when you come in with a designation, so I designated Sal as my um, guardian, and you're you know, my brother, and you come in and you say, Sal shouldn't do it. Judge is going to say, hey, your blood. Matt decided not to appoint you. He appointed Sal. There's a reason for that. Thank you for coming. <laughs> I mean, he does it kindly or she does it kindly, but that's really what we're looking at. 
there's a lot of deference that the courts give in Michigan on the written document. Okay? It's, if you think about it, it's kind of our basic setup. We sign stuff. We have things notarized. We go through the effort of preparing documents. So if we're going to go through that effort, the court is going to reward us and say, if you did it in writing, if you were a proper age, over 18, if you had the mental capacity to do your documents, and there was no undue influence or fraud, I'm going to agree with your document. And those items that I talked about, we can fix. In most of the documents that you prepare, I can fix all that. I can make them self-affirming. So you put it right in the document. What's their argument? It's right on the face. So conservatorships are a little bit different, but the same process. Usually when we go in for a guardianship, we go in for a conservatorship at the same time. And that is, judge, the person can't handle their financial assets. There may be waste. They're not paying their bills. They're not taking care of themselves. Now, the judge in this case doesn't care about inheritance. He doesn't care if somebody comes in and says, judge, mom is spending my inheritance. She's staying at a really nice nursing home. There's one across the road that's you know a little bit cheaper. Now, it's not quite as nice, but why don't we have her at the cheaper one? Court's not going to care about that, and they won't care about that. But if, we, again, we have the person that can't act on behalf of themselves, they can't take care of their financial assets, the court will appoint a conservator. Now, if you're a court appointed conservator, you have the duty of filling out an annual report so what you have to do is you have to do an accounting of every one of those uh, assets and what happened to them. And the great thing about it is you get to send it to all the heirs. So Sal's now my conservator. He gets to send it to my wife and my kids, and guess what they get to do? They get to come in and complain every year. So what I'm trying to point out is there is mechanisms if you don't have documents, right? There is a way of going to court, there is a way of protections. But I always consider those as a last resort. So what you really want to look at is you want to look at powers of attorney. So we talk about powers of attorney. We talk about durable powers of attorney effective upon disability. That's your first type. So when we're talking about durable powers of attorney effective upon disability, usually that's what's called a springing document. So it springs to effect upon a disability. The big question is, how do we determine if I'm disabled? Right? So in this power, I'm going to appoint another to act on my behalf if I can't act. So I may appoint Judy to be my Durable power of attorney effective upon disability. But Judy's issue is, number one, we want her to accept the job, right? So when I fill out the document, I'm going to say, Judy, do you want to do this? And she'll say, yeah. Or wisely, she'll probably say no. Because <laughs> it's a horrible job. Some of the things that we're talking about, when you appoint a fiduciary, it's a bad job, right? I want you to kind of keep that in mind because... What we're always going to be talking about, and one of the first questions that people hear when they come in to see me or another estate plan attorney is I ask, what are your goals? 
What are you trying to achieve? What can I do for you? Why are you here? And then once we talk about that, I'll then ask, so who do you want to appoint? And that's why I usually get the, uh. Or we talked about this yesterday. Well, I appoint my oldest child. Why? Well, they're the oldest. What skills do they have? What ability do they have that you think that you would give them this power? And then usually you get the blank stare. Well, they're the oldest. Just because they're your child, just because they're the oldest, doesn't always mean that they're the best. Doesn't mean that they're not, but I just want you to think this through. So we're going to appoint another to act when you cannot. So in the power of attorney, effective upon disability, we're going to have to determine when I'm disabled. Because if Judy accepts the position, she wants to know when she can act. So there's three fundamental ways that you can do it. Number one, if I designate in writing. Now that sounds really strange, right? But I may go into the hospital. I may have a planned procedure, and I may say, I'm going to be considered disabled from July 23rd when I go into the hospital until August 20th. So I prepare a document. I give it to Judy. She attaches it to the power of attorney. And that gives a designation when I'm considered disabled. Now, the document has to say in there that I can designate in writing when I'm disabled. But it's an important tool because we all have those instances in which we're not going to be available. Another way of doing it is upon a doctor indicating that I'm disabled. Now, this one you kind of have to be careful for. And there's a little bit of tricks in these. It's okay to say, if a doctor indicates that I'm disabled, I'm disabled. Because remember, in the guardianship, that's what's going to happen in court anyway, right? A doctor's going to indicate, I'm no longer able to make my medical decisions or my financial decisions, so somebody should be appointed on my behalf. So we're going to do the same thing in my documents, but I like two doctors. Or three doctors. It's up to you, but don't give that power to one person. It's a lot to do. And they... Ethically, they should not be in the same practice. So if you and I are doctors and I come over and I say, hey, look, you know, I think Dave's disabled. Do you want to sign it off and we'll go have lunch? <laughs> That's not the idea. You know, he should go and examine and do those things that need to be done. So the third way of doing it is the easy back out, and that is if the court determines you're disabled. If the court determines that you're disabled, we're going to do it. In my case, if the court determines I'm disabled and I need a guardian or conservatorship, Sal is going to be it because I said it in writing. He wins. It's an easy one. So what do these documents do? The Durable Power of Attorney Effective Upon Disability talks about sharing my powers when I'm disabled. So anytime I'm disabled, you can act and do anything that the document says. I like usually broad powers of attorney. I like to say, um, Gene can take care of my bank account, my businesses, uh, anything I'm doing, my tax returns. A big one is safety deposit boxes. If you have a safety deposit box, most banks or financial institutions will not let you in unless it says it in the document. And here's a trick. There's a bank in Mount Pleasant. If it says that you have access to my um, safety deposit box, but it doesn't say you can take stuff out. They'll let you open it, but they won't let you take stuff out. It is mind-blowing. Um, embarrassing, it's one of the banks I used to represent. <laughs> a 
It wasn't my advice. <laughs> no. <laughs> Guess what my powers of attorney in Mount Pleasant say? You could get the stuff out. <laughs> okay. Things have fallen off the tracks already. Durable power of attorney, effective upon execution. This is your sharing your power. The moment I sign that document, you're my agent. So on a durable power of attorney, effective upon execution, Judy can act immediately upon me signing it. I don't have to be disabled. Now, this is a good tool. Usually you will see durable powers of attorney effective upon execution, usually in a marriage situation, a long marriage, where husbands and wives just share the power. It is amazing in our legalistic standpoint what you cannot do even though you're married. Just because you're married doesn't mean that you can go and prepare or do documents for somebody. I'll give you a great example. We moved from Mount Pleasant to Edmore. I wanted to cancel our cable. It was in my wife's name. <laughs> this was a horrible experience. So I went in there. I have the cable box. I have the remotes because, you know, you, you keep on going when one doesn't work, so you get a collection after you end, right? And I actually brought the batteries back with them. So I said, here's my box. Here is all of my uh, remotes. We would like to cancel a service. You can't. Why? Your name's not in the account. I said, well, can I leave the stuff here? I'll have my wife call. No. So you don't want your stuff back. Oh, we want it back, but your wife has to bring it in. Can my wife call? No. Can she sign something in writing? No. I'm her power of attorney. Okay. Why don't you just say that? Because it's upon, it's upon disability, but let's not go there. <laughs> I didn't why they didn't ask. <laughs> but the minute I said that, wife is great. No. This is a quirk at Charter. Come on. <laughs> yes? I should have. That was, that was her question. Did they want to see it? Usually they should, right? And the banks will usually ask to have it on file. This is a good thing. This protects you. But this is the legalistic place that we become, okay? It's not all bad. Yes? Yep. Yep. Yes. I hate ands. Nobody likes those. <laughs> you want to spend a tremendous amount of time at the bank in somebody's office, put and or. <laughs> um, because people like certainty. It's either you and I can do it, or me or you. We don't like the and or. I know most attorneys that won't even touch the and or. Uh, when I first started practicing, I was uh, threatened to be beaten if I did that by my old partner. But he was right. Think about it. It just it causes an ambiguity that you just don't want to be in. So, uh, so a durable power of attorney effective upon execution is a great tool, but you're sharing your power. The real big difference in this is just when it becomes effective. Does it become effective when I sign it, or does it become effective when I become disabled?
And there's pros and cons for it. And it's what works for you, right? You know who you're picking. It's whether you want to share that power immediately or into the future. It depends on your situation. Okay, a better way of putting this is it really depends on your personality. Right? Are you that person that wants to retain control? Or are you that person that kind of wants to share control? I mean, that's what it really comes down to. It is. It is. I do have to say, um, when I talk to clients um, and we go through these things, um, I would say about 75% are up in this range. But you also have to understand, it's the people I'm representing. I represent a lot of business people. So these people usually have the mindset of retaining control. So it, it's a different mindset. Yeah, there's a business involved, so they don't necessarily want the other individual to come in. They want control of their business. So it's a little bit different mindset. Uh, I talked to my friends that work at um, Legal Aids, and they say it's about 50-50. Those of us who are old and being closer to the realization that I'm like Yes. That is correct. Actually there's a little bit of change in that. I wanna I wanna address his first um, observation and there is patterns, there's trends. So let's dig down a little bit deeper into this. First marriages, execution. Second marriage, disability. Older, upon execution. Younger, upon disability. Business owner, upon disability. Non-business owner, execution. These are fundamental trends. Uh, and it's really unique. I'll, I'll give you one more trend. Highly educated, master's, doctorate, Bachelors or high school. It's really unique to see the trend. Yes, sir. No, you share it. You still hold your powers. You're just sharing those powers. Now, when we talk about guardians and conservators, when the court makes that determination, you lose all your powers. What's kind of sad about a guardian or conservatorship is really what the what the judge is saying is you're no longer capable of handling your own affairs. I'm going to strip you of most of the rights that you have as an American. So that's why I think that this is more important to do the documents because it is really a heart-wrenching process. I used to tell my secretaries, I'm going to do one guardianship a year, contested. I won't do any more. I don't care who it is. Because it... It takes a little piece of you. It really does. Because what you're really saying to the judge is, judge, this person shouldn't have their rights anymore. And we want you to make that determination. Isn't it so much better to make the determination when you have the ability to do so? And you know what? Again, like we talked about yesterday, this is a piece of paper. You don't need it until you need it, right? 
a lot of your estate plan, you may have documents that you may never use. You may never use these, but when you have to have it, it's much better to do this than it is to go to court. I should back up the slide. Oh, I'm so proud. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I know that pride isn't a good thing, but I have so limited technical uh, status that the ability to do that is pretty limited. <laughs> Most of the time, no. If somebody does try to take you into court, that document will trump. The judge will go 99% of the time what that one does. So let's change the hypothetical. So I gave Judy my power of attorney uh, effective upon execution. Okay? My kids don't like it. I'm disabled in their mind. So they have a court petition to have me declared incompetent. Because that's really what we're doing for a guardian for servitorship. You're declaring me incompetent. You're saying I don't have the mental or physical capabilities of caring for myself for financial matters. It is. It is. And it's hard for everybody. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. When you go into a court, and um, you know, I've just recommended somebody go to a court petition. When you go to these, you can feel the temperature in the courtroom drop. You can feel the air just get heavier. I mean, they are really hard hearings because they're always contested if they've gotten in front of the judge. And there's... There's no middle ground anymore. This is a fight. So, you know, the other thing that we didn't talk about this is these are very expensive. That one case I was talking to you about, I'm willing to bet between the three attorneys, we had $30,000 into it. And you know what's sad? There wasn't that much money involved. Her estate wasn't that big. It just became issues that could have been resolved because if she would have had a power of attorney, whether it be upon disability or execution, and they filed that petition, I would have gone in and filed that with it and said, Judge, she already determined that she wants her oldest daughter to be her guardian or conservator. So, Judge, we could do whatever you want, but she already indicated in writing, and by the way, here's a statute that that person has priority. Judge would have called the case, take on very minimal testimony, said, does anybody have any objections? Well, yes, I object. No. Do you have any objections to this document that was submitted? Can you tell me when this was signed that the person was of adequate age, the person was under undue influence, the person understood what was going on? Did they have the requisite mental capacity to sign this document when they signed it? I don't care what they're doing now. I don't care what their capability is now. When they signed it, unless you have testimony to tell me that that document wasn't good, we're done. Temperature in the courtroom goes up, air pressure comes down, life is much better. Then you're talking about two, three thousand dollars versus thirty thousand. Everything's contestable. So I'm going to tell you a secret. You're in Michigan. Well, you're in the country. You're in the United States. Depending what court you're in. You have the filing fee, you've got a piece of paper, you've got a pen, you can sue anybody. I'm sorry. You know, um, my business clients will come in and say, how can you avoid me being not being sued? Sell your business. <laughs> when I first started, um, well, over 20 years ago, I used to say, if you ever get sued, this is what you need to do. 
Now when I set up a new business, I say, when you're going to get sued, this is what you do. I change it from if to when. I, uh, I'm in-house for a business now. I, I work for that family and that business. I spend the majority of my time. We've already been sued twice in four years. You know, it's just at this point, you know, they said, how do we limit this? I said, well, what we should do is just do a take a number like you see at the delis or other places like the pharmacy. I said, it'll make it a lot easier. That way we can do them in roll. It's not that they're doing anything wrong. It's just that you are going to get sued sooner or later. You are going to be in the court system sooner or later. The problem ends up being is the general climate is just different. We're more adversarial. We're less loving. And if you want to look at this from a different aspect is, you know, it is. It is. Our world is changing. We're seeing the shaking starting. You know, we're seeing that people's philosophies and people's ability to just be civil are disappearing. And the other thing that's really strange is um, I was naive when I got out of law school. When I went to a law firm, they gave me two options. They said, you can do our estate plan because our estate plan attorneys leaving. And actually, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do litigation and estate plan. I'm like, I'm going to get this together. This is going to be great. And they said, or you could do our family law, which is really divorce. We call it family law. Um, I could do divorce work. I'm thinking, how terrible would it be to be in this adversarial position all the time with two people? And I'm just going to be mediating and working with them. So I'm like, I'm going to take estate planning. After the first year, I went, wow, did I make a mistake. <laughs> in a divorce, you got a husband and wife, right? I know that's not politically correct anymore, but I'm going to say you got a husband and wife. When you do estate planning, you have all the kids, you have the spouse, you have the ex-spouse, but you also have the in-laws. It took me five years to figure out, when you have a meeting, all the in-laws stay out in the parking lot or out in the lobby. Man, the meetings go so much quicker. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, please. No, just the moment you sign it. Great question. So any of these documents, you will hold the original. Now, just got back from a seminar um, where we talked about this for a whole day. Where are we going with digital? You know, can I have my documents digitally signed? Not yet in Michigan. Give us two years. But um, when I do my documents, I say a photocopy or a digital copy is the same as an original. In the bad old days when I would do this, you would come in and I'd say, how many do you think you need? Well, I got, you know, I've got my original um, agent and I've got two backups. So I'd be like, well, you need one too. Let's do about five or six. So you see, sit there and sign five or six. Because at that time, the law was, I got to have an original. The original control. And then when you wanted to revoke it, I'm like, go back and get all the originals, right? So you're not going to file it anywhere. You're going to give it to somebody. So under my first um, example, I would give a copy to Sal. 
Now, about five years ago, they also changed, maybe it's six now, they actually changed it where my agent actually has to acknowledge and sign on. And that's a good thing. I want them to understand what their duties are. I want to accept the position, right? It's not fair to Judy or Sal under my two hypotheticals where all of a sudden they find out, oh, surprise, I'm in charge of this, right? The only nice thing is maybe I'm not capable or competent anymore, so they can't be too mean to me and yell at me. <laughs> I mean, they can, but it's just cruel at that point, right? We, You can do it. You shouldn't do it. You really shouldn't. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll tell you a great one. Um, former clients of mine, my old partner called up and he said, oh, by the way, they put you as their primary trustee about three months ago. I love the people. I mean, they're great people, but I really wish they would have asked me. So you should tell them you're not going to file it with anybody. Now, there is some exceptions to that. Your bank is probably going to want a copy. Actually, they will want a copy. Your accountant will most likely want a copy. And the reason that your accountant will want a copy is if it says in there that they can sign tax forms, you want that in there. Uh, and probably what they're also going to want to make sure is that you have the ability to come to audits. That's really fun. Also, I want to flip this on your side. If somebody asks you to be your agent, Really, we're not asking me about power of attorney. A power of attorney is a document. One of my old pet peeves, and I've gotten over it after a while, somebody will come in and say, I've got a power of attorney. I'm like, okay. I'm the power of attorney for this person. I'm like, no, you're not the power of attorney. That's the document. You're the agent. The power of attorney is the document. But I, I've since become less persnippity. Not 100%. If I hear it like three times in a day, I'll start twitching. You go, no. <laughs> We have titles for a reason. Here's the sheet. <laughs> so the important thing is when you, let's flip this around. If somebody asks you to be their agent, read the document. Talk to them. Judy might not want to take the job if she all of a sudden knows that she has to go to the IRS and be there as my agent if I get audited. Man, that's a couple horrible days. Not only that, but she has to make the decision. Yeah, you could say no. And that is a great segue into the next issue. You spent all this time and you've picked the perfect person that will do this. They've accepted the job. Now you have to have a backup. Not only should you have a backup, but you have two. So I should appoint Sal. I should appoint Judy. I should appoint Dave. So if Sal can't do it, Judy, and then Judy. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to say Sal and Judy. I'm not going to put that and in there. You know why? That's just going to make your life hard, right? Because Judy's going to be gone. You're going to need her signature. You're going to need something. And so it's going to hold up. Um, Dave's just sitting in her background saying, okay, if they can't figure it out and when they quit, I'm up, right? <laughs> Or what Dave's going to say is, he's going to look at the document, it's going to say Sal or Judy, and if one of them say no, then Dave. And Dave's like, oh. <laughs> and he may go, hope it's Judy.
No, you're not going to put or. Because you know what? Again, you're going to be in the bank uh, office and they're going to say, well, I don't really understand this or, so I don't know that it's Sal or Judy. So we're going to send it to our legal department. We'll have an answer for you in about three weeks. Absolutely, yes. Pardon? Yes, I always have a document for them to, they resign. They just say, Judy may say, I hereby resign. She doesn't have to give a reason, she just quits. We don't have indentured servitude in Michigan or in the country, she can just quit. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. And so you're all bringing supporting documentation. You know, if, if Dave's acting, he's got to have supporting documentation that Sal and Judy can act. Okay. Power of attorney for healthcare. I, I left this for last, and we've got a little bit less time than I wanted, but that's okay. This is your most important document, bar none, period. Don't care whatever else you do with your power of attorneys. Don't care what else you do with your estate planning. This is the document that you need. I'm going to tell you why. This chair, my computer, well, my daughter's computer, it's just stuff, right? If that computer goes away, I'll have to give my daughter some money, probably more than what it's worth, but I'll have to give her some money. I can't replace myself, okay? So when we talk about these things, we're more talking about stuff, right? Your power of attorney for healthcare is a separate document and it's going to be called a lot of different things. How many different terms have you heard for this? At least three or four? Yeah. I, I put them on your, on your uh, list, and I probably missed one or two, but advanced directives, living wills, um, resuscitate orders. Do not resuscitate orders. Now, I am going to warn you that you're going to hear these different words Trust me, for the most part, they're the exact same. So what I also love is somebody will say, my friend's got a living will, and I only have a power of attorney for healthcare. I want what they got. I'm like, don't tell them you do. <laughs> you got the same thing. So the only time that you're going to see this different is sometimes when you go into a hospital for a planned procedure, they may want you to sign their own document. Um, these days, a friend of mine is now the president of McLaren, CEO, CEO and president. He said, we just had lunch, and he said, we're going to start using our exact documents, and we're going to trump yours. I said, fine. You know, I understand from a risk management, you want your own document. But they will give deference to your document. They will file both of them. So this goes back to your question, who gets this document? Your doctor, the hospital and your patient advocates. So we're going to use different terms now. It, no. A patient advocate is the person that's acting on your behalf. So who am I picked on? <laughs> um, so 
what we're going to say is I'm going to name you as my patient advocate, okay? And if I have anything more than a hangnail, put me out. Okay, pull the plug. Even if I'm not attached to something, pull a plug. Pull your plugs in the, in the room, okay? So by saying that, she now has a duty, right? Part of attorney for healthcare is almost contractual. Now, sometimes we use softer language. My personal document does not have soft language. Mine is a little bit cutting edge. When she signs it, she says that she will. Not that she will take all reasonable methods or care. Well, it's a little bit different. So most powers of attorney for health care says you'll take all reasonable steps to agree with what I want, right? My personal one says she must. Mine is a little bit different. I got to say it's cutting edge. I usually experiment on myself legally than other people. Um, why not, right? <laughs> I have to joke around. There's enough judges out there that would easily sign an order to not resuscitate me. So, <laughs> Especially in federal court. <laughs> um, so I'm not worried. Somebody always hold this. So what I do is I will prepare a document and... I will indicate, what's your name? Jeanette. Jeanette is my patient advocate. So I, my personal document that I do for practicing is the same as a lot of people's. It will have choices. Uh, my law firm probably in the late 90s prepared a document for a couple of the hospitals because we were representing hospitals. Where the statute comes from is it says you can designate somebody to do what you could normally do. So I can decide every day whether I'm going to eat or drink. I can decide whether I'm going to take medication. I can decide whether I'm going to take a medical procedure. So if I can do that, Jeanette should be able to do that for me if I'm not capable. This is never going to be a shared power. This is going to be upon disability. I don't have the ability to make the decision anymore. I'm either unconscious or I'm in such a way with medication that I cannot make a reasonable decision. In that case, Jeanette steps up. She will make the decision for me. The minute I regain the ability to make my decisions, she can't act. Big difference, right? Big difference. So, Jeanette's going to see my document. I'm going to say I'm going to appoint Jeanette. And in mine is in most of them now, it's a check the box. Do you know why it's a check the box? Because the statute says that if I do not want life-sustaining treatment, there has to be clear and convincing evidence that I do not want life-sustaining treatment. What's more clear and convincing that not only I signed the document, but I had one choice that says I want everything done to keep me alive. I have another choice that says, well, if I'm in a coma for more than uh, six months, I don't want to be... Uh, kept alive, or I don't want to be kept alive at all. If I check the bottom box, that's pretty clear and convincing. Not only did I not want one, but I also didn't want two. If I'm the administrator of the hospital, I'm happy now with that decision, right? Because I can point to it and say that that's what that person wanted. Now, I do not want you to get this confused. This is not any way an assisted suicide. It is not a document that supports euthanasia. The reason why this document is in Michigan is because of Jack Kevorkian. Jack Kevorkian, if you recall, was a doctor that was 
working with assisted suicide throughout Michigan in the 90s. He is the one that was instrumental in getting this done. Not intentionally. He didn't want this law. It was just in response to him. If you remember in Michigan in the mid-90s, you're either pro-Kevorkian or anti-Kevorkian. There was no in-between. And especially in Ionia County where he was tried criminally, man, you know, you're in Mockham, you're one county away, it was a big deal back then. Um, I had a friend in a prosecutor's office, he said it was just insane, the people that were there, for and against. But what the good thing that happened is we now have a clear and convincing law in Michigan, and that is I can share my power with Jeanette, but I can only do so in writing. There has to be clear and convincing evidence of what I want, and she has to accept. The other portion of the statute is she can't get paid. We didn't want Jack Kevorkian running around getting paid for what he was doing. So she can't get paid. The other thing is she can quit. Right? Just like Judy can quit, or Sal can quit as my regular power of attorney, she can quit. There's no indentured servitude. She's not required to do it. The other thing is I can fire her. Now this gets a little tricky, right? So I'm not doing well. I'm in the hospital. I'm coming in and out of consciousness. I said, Jeanette, you're fired. I go back unconscious. What do you do then? So there has to be a good, clear, and good amount of communication between Jeanette and I before we ever get to that point. You know, I'm like, Jeanette, this is what I want. You know, I know this is a hard job. Are you willing to take it? It's a hard job both ways. If Jeanette sees me in a position that she's not comfortable with, and I want everything done to keep me alive, that's a hard one too. And I've had people on both sides of this. And i got to say, every now and then somebody will run to court. Remember the Terry Schiavo thing in Florida? They ran to court and they wanted to have the judge make decisions. Most of the time the courts were like, we don't want to touch this. And so the first thing they're going to say is, do you have a power of attorney for health care? The answer is going to be, yes, I do. The response is, go back to that document. We affirm it. Now, there's another trick about power of attorneys for health care. They do get stale. Okay? So when we first started doing these in the early 2000s, somebody would come uh, with their documents, and they're signed all over in the back and everywhere. I'm like, what are you doing? You know? I'm really particular about my documents. You know, the point, font's got to be the same and, you know, spacing and everything. Then they're signing all over the place. I'm like, you're ruining my documents. It's so pretty. <laughs> There's a place for you to sign. <laughs> what I learned uh, was the hospitals were saying, if you're going to come in for a planned procedure or if you're going to come in, we want you to affirm this position. We want to make sure that you still agree that Jeanette's not only your power of attorney for, the power of attorney for health care is not only valid, She's your patient advocate, and this is what you want. So now a lot of the new ones you'll see, and you've probably seen this before, they'll have places for you to sign and reaffirm. Yep. 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 So that's a good thing. You know, if they ask you to resign your document, you want this because you... Yep. Yep. So... Yeah. It's not a law. It's procedural. Uh, I went in for a planned procedure. I brought my power of attorney. I was so happy. I'm like, do you want me to reaffirm it? And they're like, no, our 
our rule is 36 months, yours is what, 24 months, so like, no, you don't have to sign it. I was so happy, I was ready to do it, ready to resign it. So it really depends on the procedure. Resigning it every year is not a bad deal, but I wouldn't do it, just because sooner or later you're going to run out of spaces. You, yeah, but when I do mine, I think there's about eight lines or ten lines. This is, if you're ever asked to do this, uh, this is an important job. It really is. And this is why I saved this for last for today. Um, because there's really two sides of this. You have to pick the right person or persons. And again, if you weren't here yesterday, I pick on my family because we got a lot of weird and neat legal issues. Um, I... Um, designated my wife as my first patient advocate. She didn't want the job. And I'm like, if I thought the first person wanted to kill me, she'd be like on the top of the list, right? <laughs> and not to be anything bad about my wife. My wife is an absolute wonderful person. She's one of the most caring people I know. She's a social worker. She's worked for the court for 20 years. She brings a different perspective than anybody. Um, but like you're saying, she goes, I can't do it. So um, my, at that point, was a little cutting edge. Um, and so I had my friend that's an attorney do it. I figured not only would he do this, but if there was a fight, he would be the person that would fight. Yes. Yes, they can. But it becomes a practical issue, right? It's just getting him here at that time. Now, the reverse is not true. So in my document, I will say that this document is to be interpreted by Michigan law. But we understand that maybe going to a state that doesn't accept this. So we ask that the hospital or the doctor's office comply with this. So two of the bigger places I had called and talked to their general counsel, Mayo Clinic will accept it. They'll accept it. They say if the person was domiciled in Michigan, if it's a Michigan document, we'll accept it. Uh, Cleveland Clinic will accept it. But those are the only two big institutions out of Michigan that I know that will say, yes, we'll accept this. Because there's so many things involved in this, right? From a hospital, it's a liability outside of Michigan, so they don't feel really comfortable. From an insurance standpoint, you know, if I've got life insurance, you know, it becomes really unique. I do have to say there's one thing that was happening. I don't see it anymore. But there is a provision in most people's life insurance, at least there used to be, that if I um, designate you, I'm not designate you. Let me pick on somebody. Yes, you. So if I designate you as my um, beneficiary of my life insurance, you kill me. You don't get the money, right? Why should somebody gain for you know putting you on there? The reason I didn't want to pick on you is you look actually really pleasant. I couldn't imagine you killing me. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> but what was kind of unique is some of the life insurance companies were actually pushing back on this. And so if my wife was my beneficiary and she was my patient advocate and I said pull the plug and she did it, they would say, well, we're not going to pay the life benefit. So I think there's been enough cases and enough lawsuits. Huh? It is. It is. Well, insurance companies... Uh, it's so unique to have a mic on you. <laughs> life insurance, uh, 
in all insurance companies' job is to collect premiums and build really big buildings. Yes. Um, most of the time, before a lot of digital is, now I tell people, keep your documents on your phone. I used to say, keep them in your glove box. Because um, most EMTs, most professionals will go through the glove box if there's a uh, accident and they'll bring the documents. So I'll have them write really big POA healthcare. Sharpies work great. And I still tell people to do that. Great idea. Um, conference can help you. They have little cards that they will actually do this. And they charge nothing. I'm saying that right, correct? <laughs> um, most hospitals or um, other places, when you come in, they will have them. The only reason I don't like going to them is I like that you're using their document, but some of the some of them don't have the little tricks yet. That is the digital or the photocopies. They don't have the reaffirmation places. Um, you know, they don't have the HIPAA release. In my powers of attorney for healthcare, I put a HIPAA release, but most HIPAA releases only last for a certain amount of time. Mine says, irrespective of what the federal statute says now or in the future, my HIPAA release goes on into perpetuity as long as this document's there. Because isn't it unfair that she has to make a decision on my medical care, but she can't consult with the doctor because it's a HIPAA violation? So they come to you and say, um, you need to make a decision to end Matt's life or not end Matt's life. And you say, what's wrong with him? I can't tell you. What's his chances of recovery? Can't tell you. You know, what's, what's the cost if he continues on with services? Can't tell you. Doesn't that seem unfair? And it's one of those things, it's, you know, it's, it's again, it's the logistic attitude that we're in. Now we went over time a little bit. I am going to stay after, but I can't stay too long today. I also come early. Um, so usually it's questions, but we've already gone through that. What we're going to do tomorrow is we're going to talk about who do you trust? Who do you trust? And it's not really a loaded term. We're going to talk about trusts. Now, power of attorney is very important. But I want to talk about trust because I'm going to... You know, like the kids who say, I'm going to tell you a spoiler. Most people don't need trusts. And I'm going to tell you why, and we're going to kind of go through them. But there are certain circumstances that if you don't have a trust, it's going to make your life more difficult. But those are very limited, okay? So stay tuned for tomorrow. So why don't we do this? Why don't we bow our heads? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. What a beautiful day on this campus. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings that we receive. We thank you for your wisdom and guidance. And Lord, we just ask that you pour your Holy Spirit onto this campus during this campaign. Guide us as you would. And those seeds that are being planted, we ask that you help them nourish them to grow. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.